Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You're about to hear a recording of a live radio program. It's called Indivisible. You can listen live and call in four nights a week on public radio stations around the country or at indivisibleradio.com. You can also join the conversation with hashtag indivisibleradio or leave us a voicemail at indivisibleradio.com. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Okay, here's the show. This is Indivisible, Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. From WNYC Radio, I'm Kai Wright. Good evening. And I'm Anne McElvoy from The Economist. We're your hosts for this night of Indivisible. We're on live on over 150 stations around the country. And we're going to be here Monday through Thursday for the first 100 days of the new presidency. We'll be talking with and listening to you. And on these Monday nights, we're going to be asking for your personal stories. How are the big decisions of this presidency playing out for you? We at The Economist have our correspondents worldwide figuring out what it means outside the US. And of course, we'll be sharing that. So it was a big weekend. Donald Trump promised repeatedly that he would build stronger borders. And on this subject, at least, he is thus far a man of his word. He signed two executive orders last week that delighted his supporters and made the worst fears of his critics a reality. The first order focused on undocumented immigrants, and in a normal week, it would have been plenty of news to fuss over that alone. But then on Friday, he signed his order temporarily halting all refugee settlement in the U.S., indefinitely banning Syrian refugees, and blocking anyone traveling from one of seven majority Muslim nations from entering the United States. So we are dedicating the whole show to discussing this second order. We want to hear from people who are wrestling with the real-world impact of that order. Call us right now and tell us how these bans affect your life. What are the stakes for you in this? The number is 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. And right now, we don't want your opinions. What we want to hear is your story about dealing with the travel ban or dealing with the refugee ban. 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. And I've been talking to our network of correspondents all around the globe about how other countries see Donald Trump's clampdown. Do they think it's a betrayal of everything the Statue of Liberty stands for, America opening its arms to those in need? Well, here's what some of them told me. In Berlin, where Angela Merkel has agreed to let in up to a million refugees, there's wide-ranging dismay across the political spectrum at the weekend's events here in the US. And in part, I think that's because there are historical echoes here. So many memories of refugees from Germany headed to America to escape the Third Reich. But in Brazil, our reporter noted another contrast. Brazil is keen to get motivated newcomers on board, partly for economic reasons, but it's fast-tracking visas for those coming from Syria. Maybe the country is striking a note of contrast with the U.S. there, Kai. Indeed, and we're going to get into the details of that global, global picture a little later in the show. For now, let me just say also that I grasp that we've set up this series in a way that can make it tough for some people to, to, to participate in the discussion. We've said that all voices are welcome in this national conversation, and we really do mean that. But we also know that if you feel personally targeted by this administration's policies or its rhetorics, then... There are some opinions that feel like a threat to you. So let me be clear. 
our goal tonight and our goal on Monday nights moving forward will be to move away from spouting opinions at one another altogether. Instead, we want to hear what's going on in your life, in your family, at your job, in your community. That is how we're going to get to learn more about one another in a real way. So call us up and do tell us your story. We're starting tonight with people who are dealing with the consequences of the bans. We'll talk about the fear and any other reasons that might motivate these bans a bit later in the hour. For now, though, is there someone in your family you're worried about? Do you have questions about plans you've made, maybe to travel for work or family reasons, perhaps? The number is 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. I know, for instance, we have a lot of listeners in the Minneapolis area, and there is a large Somali community there. We'd love to hear from you. 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255. Somalia is one of the countries on the travel ban list. The others are Iran, Iraq, Sudan, Yemen, Syria, and Libya. Anyone from those places who is affected and want to tell us your experience, call us up, 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. You can also join us on Twitter with the hashtag IndivisibleRadio. And we're going to get right off the bat with a caller from Chicago, Lindsay from Chicago. Welcome to Indivisible Radio. How are you? Hi. I'm <laughs> not doing so well right now. <laughs> okay. Well, tell us, tell us the details of what you're facing in your family. Um, so I am a white American. I was born a cradle Catholic. Um, I'm not practicing and I am married to a Pakistani Muslim immigrant, and we live in his house with his his whole family, and we live right across the street from their mosque that they visit every day. And we are scared. We're scared about the rise in hate crimes that is going to ultimately happen due to such hateful acts by President Trump. And... You know, I don't. I don't remember a time when my family was ever afraid to go to church to worship um, in the land of the free. Um, so you're and, con- you're concerned about some of the violence, like we saw in Quebec today. There was uh, a shooting at a mosque there, uh, and and your concern is less about um, because uh, uh, your husband would not be. Uh, as a Pakistani immigrant, he wouldn't right. be affected He's by the not ban. Affected. But you're 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 just worried about the climate in Chicago. Is do you feel like the climate there has changed at all since the election, or do you, uh, how do you? It, I I do. I think that it, it definitely has. Um, you know, his family members are very strong, but after the election, it, it's you know his. <laughs> my cousins are afraid to wear their hijab outside of the house. They are afraid to wear traditional dress to go to the grocery store because they're afraid of being targeted. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, as a, as a white American, it, it brings tears to my eyes every day that my fellow countrymen can be so hurtful to them. Well, thank you for sharing that, Lindsay. Um, we'll, we're going to talk a little later in the program about some of the, a lot of the fears that people on all sides of this have. First, I, I want to bring in to the conversation we have a guest here in the studio, Ra- excuse me, Ramzi Qasim. Am I pronouncing your name correctly, Ramzi? I'm so sorry. He's a professor at the City University of New York School of Law, where he directs the CLEAR Project. Ramsey was among the lawyers who showed up at airports around the country this weekend to try to offer emergency legal assistance to people being detained. Welcome. 
Thank you. So we want you to talk about the legal questions that travelers face, their families and, and, and people with uh, refugee travelers and, and, and people with family members who are refugees. But we also want to first clarify some of the details of what's going on right now. We've had some breaking news this evening. We know uh, we're all expecting a complicated legal battle over Saturday's federal court rulings that blocked parts of the executive order. But earlier this evening, we learned that acting attorney general Sally Q. Yates, who I believe was the number two in Obama's Justice Department, has instructed the department's lawyers not to defend Trump's executive order in court. And to be clear, the Justice Department is not in charge of actually screening people at the border, so but rather defending the order in court. It, it, do I understand that right, Ramsey? And what do we how do we make sense of this in the immediate? I know things are moving fast uh, and we're all trying to wrap our head around it. But uh, do, do you have any sense of what this may or may not mean? Yeah, I mean, that, that's absolutely correct. Uh, this is uh, some would say a rare instance of the Justice Department actually living up to its name and, uh, you know, leading to an outcome that that is consistent with justice. Here you have Sally Yates, who is the senior uh, Senate-confirmed official at the Justice Department. She's also someone the Trump administration happens to need until Attorney General Sessions is confirmed and sworn in because she's the only person who can approve some pretty sensitive warrants. So she's in a position of strength, and she decided to do the right thing here and and not sign off on the Justice Department lawyers going into court to defend what she thinks uh, is an abuse of executive power. But in terms of people who are out there and wondering, what does this mean for me if I'm affected by the order? It doesn't directly mean anything for them, right? Well, what it means is that um, there will not be a legal defense of the order in court. In other words, if you were to present at a point of crossing at a border or at an airport and the Customs and Border Protection Agency were to attempt to deny you service and lawyers were to file a lawsuit on your behalf in federal court, um, there wouldn't be any opposition. Uh, the judges, the judges would have to go with the plaintiff, the person filing the lawsuit. Um, so that it's 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 a pretty significant thing. It may be short lived uh, because we we don't know how soon Attorney General Sessions is going to be confirmed uh, and will overrule her. Uh, but for the time being, it's it's a significant moment in U.S. history. That's that's so that's a, that's a, that's different than the impact I thought. So that's that is that is a big deal. Uh, let's bring in Siavash in Atlanta, Georgia. Welcome to Indivisible. Uh, hello, thank you. Thanks for having me. First of all, I want to apologize for my accent. I'm an international PhD student here at Georgia Tech. And I want to talk about, uh, from my story, on behalf of all the students on visa from those seven countries affected with this executive order. We are all very nervous. We are, uh, we, we are very frustrated. We are just students here. And, and now with this executive order, first of all, we cannot go back to our home to visit our family. We need to stay here. And if we go back, we cannot continue our studies. <laughs> no one gets it. That's why. What's our mistake? We are not representing our government. We are just people that we born <laughs> in that country. And now, <laughs> for a better future, for just a study here, uh, we came to the United States. We are totally legal. We had a very long uh, process to get visited, to get our student visa, and now this happened. And another fear is that now no one else, a, a student like me in Iran, for example, or from one of those seven countries, cannot come to United States, cannot apply to any university here. And, and this is a real discrimination against us. 
and uh, I hope uh, people can hear us, listen to us, because no one talks about the students here. Um, student visas are a very important thing, for example, I think, for United States. And um, I'm just going to so ju jump in there if I could. I thought, you know, you make a, a point very eloquently there and it's the same point that actually we've had about student visas once there's a pressure on the system we've seen a lot in in great britain and in, in other parts of europe but it, it made me wonder uh, ramsey that that point is this really a legal choice or is there a values one at stake because it's possible to muddle up the two right yeah i mean i think i think it's 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 fairly easy to get lost in the legality of of a measure like this and to lose sight of the larger picture, including most centrally the implications for real people like your listener here, who is unpacking uh, exactly what it means for him, and he is not alone. There are hundreds of people, and in this situation, thousands of people in this situation, and, and the suffering ripples out. It isn't just the immediately affected people. It isn't just the, the student visa holder who's here in the United States and has to choose between seeing his family or continuing his studies. It's their family, their community, and on longer term, it's our country's relationship with the rest of the world. Sivash, uh, can I ask you, first off, you don't need to apologize for your accent. <laughs> we love accents. <laughs> and, and second off, uh, did, we've heard some stories of students who were traveling because exactly. classes were because out and are now traveling. Do you have students. any classmates or friends who, who have not been yes, able to get I back? I so many friends from Iran that now they are stuck uh, uh, in Tehran, in Iran, and they cannot come back here to start the semester because, for example, in MIT, this is exactly the winter break for them, and they started the semester today at uh, MIT in Boston. And there were some students that they just traveled home because they thought that, okay, this is a winter break, we come back for the new semester, and now they cannot come back. So uh, this is so much pressure on us. We already <laughs> in pressure. We are uh, doing PhDs here. We are doing masters. It's a lot of coursework and research. And now this adds <laughs> to it. Well, uh, we are all broken. Thank you for that. I'm going to let you go. We're going to get a bunch of callers in here. We have a lot of people who want to join us. Uh, Mo in D.C., welcome to Indivisible. Uh, hello, how are you? I'm well. Uh, how are you, Mo? Thanks for taking my call. I'm, a little, I'm doing well. I'm a little shaken. Um, I'm a natural-born United States citizen. Uh, I've been living in uh, Chicago and now D.C. I've been a uh, citizen all my life, 40 years now. Uh, you know, I was directly, although I wasn't uh, a member of the of the class or, or people who were targeted by the current administration's policies, uh, I think my, my story kind of illustrates how uh, people not intended to be targeted uh, somehow get caught up in the net anyway. Um, uh, I'm a, uh, like I said, I'm of Pakistani descent, and uh, my wife and I were traveling for our honeymoon, uh, this past week, we returned to the states on Saturday, uh, and we were summarily detained by Customs and Border Protection. Uh, no reason was given, uh, no explanation, no interrogation, no interview. We were uh, put into a room. Uh, we were not locked into the room, but we were told we were not allowed to leave. Uh, for the entire period of our layover, we were detained in our room. We were not allowed to leave until five minutes after our connecting flight began boarding. Uh, and the entire time that I was detained, we weren't 
fed. We weren't uh, checked on. And uh, the only things that occurred was, the, was several customs and border protection agents openly mocked us. Uh, they, they told stories uh, to each other in our presence about how Trump was going to protect the country now. And he's banning uh, all the Middle Eastern people from entering the country. Uh, and he's issuing some kind of orders of, uh, on an individual basis, sending people to other countries. And Mo, you're saying these were border officials that were saying this to you? It was uniformed, it badged customs and border protection agents. Let me just interrupt uh, you for a second, Mo, and ask, mm-hmm. uh, and ask Ramsey, is, have, have you, is, is this an exceptional experience we're hearing there? Is this the kind of thing that you were hearing when you were at JFK this weekend? Uh, what do we make of what Mo is telling us? Uh, I mean, look, um, I hate to break it to many of your listeners, but this has been the experience of American Muslims and other Muslim-identified travelers coming in and out of the United States for years under the Obama administration, under the Bush administration before it. And now under Trump, what we're seeing is it's a difference in, it's a massive difference in degree, but it's a difference in degree. It's not a difference in kind. In other words, the message that Customs and Border Patrol officials have heard is that the gloves can now come off. They can dial up what they've been doing for years and be unapologetic about it. And frankly, you can't blame them because try as they may, the Trump administration can't backpedal now and make it seem like it's not a Muslim ban when they've spent the better part of a year talking about it as a Muslim ban. You can't blame those customs officials for hearing it for what it is and applying the Muslim ban. And and this is this has had an emboldening effect on government officials at airports. They are subjecting all Muslims to questioning. It doesn't matter if they are U.S. citizens or non-U.S. citizens. They are doing it unapologetically. They're doing it frontally because they believe they have a president in the White House who will back them up. And unfortunately, it also sets the stage for hate crimes and private uh, racist rhetoric. As we heard at the beginning... Sorry, go ahead, I'm sorry to interrupt. That's go ahead. who I fear the most is individuals who are not necessarily following the administration's laws or rules that they're putting into effect now, but people who take it a step further outside the, the realm of legal behavior and, and see it as a license to justify their own personal uh, prejudices or, or desires to act out, whether it's uh, seen as, as, as some kind of retribution for having been silenced for so long or, or, or trying to burst out of this cage of political correctness, I, you know, whatever the cause or, 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 or justification may be, that, that's who I fear the most. Okay, Mo, I'm going to interrupt you for just a second. Thanks for calling. We're, we, we need to go to a break, but callers, we, we're, we're going to get to you. We want to hear from all of you. You've been listening to Indivisible. Keep the calls coming, 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. We'll be back with more of this conversation. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, the New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.
This is Indivisible, Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. From WNYC Radio, I'm Kai Wright. And I'm McElroy, Senior Editor at The Economist, here with Kai in the studio. And we'll be taking your calls here on 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255 on your experience of the refugee crisis and the way that it's playing out in your life or for those around you. And as your calls are coming in, we'll be joined by Betsy Fisher. She's Policy Director for the International Refugee Assistance Project. And Betsy's going to join us here in a little bit. First, we're going to, because we have so many of you calling in, we want to get more of your questions in uh, for Ramsey. And we're going to go to Zach in Brooklyn. Hi. So, yeah, I'm a white American, and uh, I found out about the ban on Friday. And Saturday, I went to the airport, the JFK, to pick up my dad. And because of this ban and the protest, I got stuck in traffic for like an hour and a half. It was really, really annoying. It's just my experience about the ban I wanted to share. Okay. Well, thank you for that, Zach. Uh, we're going to go to Tariq in Columbus, Ohio. Yes. Hi, Tariq. Uh, hi, how are you? I am well. What's What's been your, how has this affected your life? Okay, um, uh, originally from Sudan. I've been living in this country for, for a while, over 17 years. I'm an American citizen. I live here with my, um, my two brothers, live in different um, states. Uh, so I just want to give this uh, topic a different, from a, you know, uh, a different perspective, because a lot of people... Probably some of the listeners, they do not care about humanitarian issues. From an economical point of view, uh, we brought our mother about four years ago here uh, for a knee surgery, and we spent close to $60,000. She was here within the last two months. Uh, We brought her for an eye surgery. It cost close to $16,000. She doesn't have an insurance, so we paid that out of pocket. Now... Our sister is recently uh, was recently diagnosed with uh, breast cancer, so uh, the health care is not you know uh, really good in, in Sudan. So we, we uh, flew her to um, Cairo, Egypt, uh, to start the uh, treatment, and then the plan is to bring her over here, uh, you know, after she started the treatment, so we can finish do the surgery or whatever it takes uh, here in this country. So that's going to be a lot of money spent also. So now we're rethinking the whole plan. Uh, if she's going to apply for a visa, probably, you know, whether granted or not, she's not going to be able to be admitted to this country. So we're going to just continue everything in Cairo. And um, so um, a lot of money lost for, you know, mm. uh, some people who only think about the benefits from those, um, you know, aliens, whether legal or illegal. So that's that's close to a thousand, hundred thousand dollars lost. I think uh, uh, I'm just uh, just butting in there to say, you know, I, I, I think that's a very good point that we often hear about the liabilities of immigration and uh, the associated view that it, it's in in some way there's only a downside. But the economic point for countries. Uh, like America and like Britain, for that matter, are very important. If you close your doors, you also close your doors to providing services for people. You also, you could have, market capitalism works quite well if people can get into experience it. Sky might disagree with me on that. <laughs> That's me on that. That's me from the nation. Sometimes I disagree with market capitalism. But in any case, uh, what, let's, 
let's switch to Rahima from Burnsville, Minnesota. Yes, this is Rahma. Thank you for taking my call. Thank you for calling us, Rahma. What has been your experience? My experience is that I was devastated for the last, you know, three days. I know when the campaign he was saying it, but I didn't know he was going to go through with it. You know, the ban of Muslims. But, you know, I'm very, like, very, very disappointed when it comes to all the hope that I had for this country. I thought that my husband was going to come, but now I lost all hope. And and where where did you say your husband is? My husband is in Kenya. Mm. So I'm Somali American. I'm citizen. Yeah. And and so and and so now you feel like there's just even though Kenya isn't on the list of banned countries, you you feel like it's but going to be I'm impossible from, to get him here. But we're from Somalia, so he's mm. trying to come I understand. from Kenya without doing the visa for him. I understand. So you guys had left Somalia. You had fled from Somalia yeah. because of the violence. Yeah. And you made it here, but he's but he's still in 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 in, a, in Kenya. Is he in uh, a refugee camp there? Yes, he's in a refugee camp, and I have a two-year-old son for him. Mm. So, so I don't know what to tell his son. Like, am I going to tell him, "Hey, your dad cannot come to the, you know, United States"? I don't know what to say. Thank you for that. What 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 what, what do you say to 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 Rahima? What what, what can we tell her? I, I think this illustrates two things uh, primarily. First. Um, you know, at the stroke of a pen, President Trump has literally ripped families apart. And Rahma's experience is just one very poignant illustration of, of that reality. And when you juxtapose that with the complete absence of evidence of any threat, right, when you, keep in, when you remember that this is a solution in quest of a problem, you have an executive order that sets out to prevent people from certain countries from coming into the United States in order to protect national security when citizens of those countries have not historically committed acts of terror here in the United States and when refugees have not been responsible for um, you know, a, a crime wave here in the United States. What I would say to Rahma and the many others in her situation is that for now, this ban is in effect for 90 days. Uh, I would hope that people can maintain their commitment, their passion, they can sustain that over the long term uh, to make sure that when that 90-day mark comes, the president will know better than to extend this ridiculous and racist ban any further. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Ramzi Kassem, professor of, uh, pr- professor of law at the City University of New, Sco- New York, excuse me, the City University of New York School of Law. Thank you so much for joining us for this difficult conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we're going to be joined now by Betsy Fisher, Policy Director for the International Refugee Assistant Project. Betsy, so pleased you're joining us. And there's a couple of basics I'd like you to clear up for me and for our listeners. What is the vetting process being imposed here? And what's precisely so different about it? The executive order on that score, there's always been a ceiling of some sort on refugee admissions, sometimes higher, sometimes lower, depending on the administration. Why is this different? 
Sure. Thanks for having me. Uh, this this order um, does about three different things, at, at least, to the refugee program. Um, the first is that it sets a cap of 50,000 total to be admitted this fiscal year. Um, that would be the the, the smallest total um, in the history of this program since 1980, and at a time when the refugee crisis is at its greatest, that certainly sends the wrong message about American humanitarian leadership. Um, the second is that it puts a hold on all refugee resettlement uh, for 120 days, um, at least, and then an indefinite ban on, on Syrian resettlement. So for people who are going through that process um, before this executive order, um, the process is that individuals had to register with the United Nations. They would go through biometric, um, iris scans, numerous interviews, document collection. That information would all be um, sent along to the U.S. State Department, which would then um, collect more information, go through a detailed personal history of those individuals. Um, they would be fingerprinted mm -hmm. and have uh, more biographics. They would then go through um, an in-depth personal interview with a U.S. officer trained in, in a variety of things from refugee law to, um, to, to different kinds of screening. And then they, um, through all of this process, they're going through security checks from dozens of different U.S. intelligence agencies, um, in, in addition to having medical checks done. And that's before this um, this order is put in place. I realize it's a bit, how long is it, a piece of string, but the intention <laughs> behind it from President Trump was about the need for, for, for fierce vetting for a number of reasons, including security. But I think we have a, a caller, Andrea, in, in, in Pittsburgh, you know, who perhaps reflects some of the audience that President Trump has been talking to when he made his case on this. Hello? Hi there, Andrea. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, with us. I am a physician at a health center in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We have had as a special focus um, incoming refugees, newcomers to Pittsburgh mm. um, over the past 10 years. Um, and in Pittsburgh, as a sh shrinking city, um, as other shrinking cities around the country, we have looked to refugees um, as a, a source of growth for our community and also an increase in right. diversity. Um, it has been a wonderful addition to our um, to our city, as they, as they have been throughout the country. Um, it, there has also been a growth in the refugee resettlement agencies here. It's been kind of a growth business um, in Pittsburgh, and everyone feels quite threatened and uncertain about how to plan for the future. And it is your point that the, it, it's the uncertainty that, that is eating away at you. And how do people feel about that? Is there a sense everybody's on board with that, with looking after refugees, with their requirements? There are always you know, strains on public services when you have a large number of incomers, for whatever reason. Um, I don't know what you mean by everybody. Um, there hasn't really been an issue with, um, with people resettling here. Uh, there's been... Certainly certain areas where there's um, affordable housing that have been impacted more, um, especially in the schools. Uh, but most people, um, compared to the entire population of Pittsburgh, don't kind of even notice that they're here. Right. Um, well, let, let me uh, thank you very much for that, Andrew. Let, let, let me just segue uh, back to, to Betsy, if I could. That link that President Trump has been making at its heart is about security. It's about the need for fiercer vetting the reasons of American security. What, if any, is the connection here? 
I think that the U.S. Refugee Resettlement Program promotes national security for for a few reasons. Um, One is that this program actually provides opportunities for people who allied with the United States to come to safety, which sends a message to our allies, particularly in Iraq and Afghanistan, that if they come under threat because they've served with us, that that we'll protect them. Um, But also, um, refugees, um, Rahma, who was on the show earlier, um, she she called in and uh, she said that her family had fled from Somalia. Um, People like her, many refugees from Syria, from Iraq are fleeing from ISIS. They're, free, they're fleeing from terrorism and from violence. And if we fail to provide an alternative, if we fail to show um, that we that we understand the humanitarian needs of people like that, if, if we fail to, to demonstrate that we will stand alongside countries like Jordan and Lebanon that are so essential um, to our to our foreign relations and, and to our national security, then we fail to, to stand alongside these folks. And we've, um, as many now National security experts have pointed out were promoting propaganda for ISIS. Well, that was actually what what I wanted to ask you. Really, was do you feel that there's there's obviously a, a balance here, different views, but some people will say, "Hang on, Muslim immigrants have been involved in attacks in the U.S. as elsewhere." What do refugees say to you that touches on that, sensitive as it is? Sure. I mean, for for my clients, um, my organization provides free legal services to refugees, in, including. Um, uh, we also sent out the call for the emergency response for uh, attorneys to go to to airports this weekend. Um, but for for the clients who we serve on a, on a day to day basis and have served for several years, these are people who have lost family members to to terrorism. Um, people who have had family members kidnapped because they serve the United States. People who have faced um, persecution because they hold um, beliefs that promote democracy or or views that are that are um, viewed as being dissenting in their places of origin. You are listening to Indivisible Public Radio's national conversation about America at a time of change. Join the conversation when you're ready. Call us at 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. Or tweet using hashtag Indivisible Radio. Right now, we're, we're particularly interested in hearing from you, whether you're against the ban or for the ban. We want to know what in your life experience has shaped the way you think of our national response to the refugee crisis. We know that fear is part of it for some of you. Call us and tell us why. If so, or maybe it's not about fear, maybe it's something else altogether. Explain that to us. 844-745-TALK. And let's go to Arturo in Chicago. Arturo, welcome to Indivisible. Hey, how you doing? Pretty good. How are you? I'm pretty good. Um, I, for one, I'm I'm for, you know, it, it took a lot of thinking, but I, I am for the ban. Just because the way where I see this country is going, and it it, it, it kind of hurts. I mean, I, I was in Iraq for over two years, and I lost a lot of brothers over there. Mm. And while I was there, you know, conducting missions, I met a lot of good Muslims and also a lot of bad. And there's a lot of tragedies that I see, you know, throughout the world and yeah i'm i'm fine opening my arms to you know a lot of people that need help but at the same time that that's you know we need to show uh, a strength and show the rest of the world that okay fine right now muslims are the issue and they're killing a lot of people uh, and they're they're breaking a lot of families up you know yeah i hear i've been listening yeah we're breaking a lot of their families by not letting them into our country but at the same time when the few bad seeds that there are are killing, you know, hundreds of people, and we're not doing anything about it. We're just opening our doors. No, that, that's not how it should work. You need to go back to basics, so, put everybody in check, 
and show strength that this is not tolerable. Let me ask you, Arturo. Uh, so you said uh, you know you were you served in Iraq for two years, and, and you know thank you for that service. That you're that while you were there, you you see good and bad, and and and, and I just want to make sure I'm understanding you here that you would say, hey, sure, let's help people if it weren't for the fact that you're concerned that some of them would be terrorists. Is that is that an accurate? Restatement uh, along of what you those mean. lines, yes. We we just need a better process and and getting inventing who who is good and who is bad. Oh. And right now they're making that process, so nothing's wrong with just putting a stop to everything. Yeah, feelings are going to be hurt. Feelings, the feel, people's feelings are always hurt. That's why we have a chain of command to. So- Make so thank, for us. so thank you, Arturo. Betsy, we, we wanted to find out from you what, how much of that is true. So, so what, what exactly is the process now? Uh, what is the level of threat that that people face from refugees? But that's two part of the, but, but both of those things. Can you speak to them? But answer sure, short well, for us. <laughs> sure. I, uh, I yes, I already um, outlined the the extensive processing. I'll, I'll just say that for um, for most individuals, that process takes about two years. Most of that time is in the security vetting process um, with security agencies. Um, working through um, about two dozen security agencies in the United States determine who is and is not a threat. Um, this ban does not suggest any new security steps. It simply places a ban and calls for an evaluation. Um, a, a bill introduced and passed through the House last year did not become law. Its addition to the security screening process was to require secretary heads to sign off. That's not a security step. Um, so I agree. I want this country to be safe. I, my family's here. I'm here. Um, and, uh, and we are doing that safely. Betsy, if I were just to, to come in on that, everybody wants that. What do you make of, of the link that it is made sometimes between this ban as a recruiting tool for terrorists and sympathisers? Do you think that's credible, you on that? You know, the this program is by far the most vigorously vetted program. So to turn our attention and focus on, on this program and on these seven countries where there's there's no empirical evidence that, that this is the threat, um, I, I think it's it's it, it's not a credible way to address national security concerns. Well, we're going to leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. Betsy Fisher, Policy Director for International Refugee Assistance Project. When we come back, we take a look around the world. The travel ban and the refugee ban have put put political leaders on the spot well beyond the United States. You're listening to Indivisible. We'll be back. From WNYC, I'm Kai Wright. And I'm Anne McElvoy from The Economist. Keep your calls coming. We're very keen to hear from you. 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. 
So, Anne, we're going to talk about some of the things you've been hearing from correspondents around the world uh, at, at, at The Economist. First, we're going to just hop right into some of these calls we've got because people have a lot to say on this yeah, topic. Sure. Uh, Wajiha in Chicago. Am I pronouncing your name correctly? Yes, you are. Oh, wonderful. Well, welcome to Indivisible. And, uh, and what, do you, what do you want to tell us about Wajiha? Thank you for having me. So um, I'm currently, I work for a contractor for the United States De- of Department of Defense. Um, so basically my main clients are the U.S. Navy and the U.S. Air Force. Um, every day I go to work and I work to keep America safe, um, making things, you know, providing things for our veterans, providing things for our warfighters. Um, and so I wear the headscarf at work and I've never had a problem prior to today. Um, and today I go into work, and all of a sudden I am they. I am the other side. I am the people that we're trying to protect America from. And, you know, obviously this is coming from what's happened during the weekend, and I come from a very Republican, right-sided um, company. And so for all of a sudden, for we're sharing the same goals. We share, every, like, we share the same goals every day when we go to work. And now I'm a, I am them. I am part of ISIS. I'm part of the threat to America. And it's just completely changed how I'm, you know, just as a Muslim woman at a a company like this, how I'm being treated. And that's not right. That's not, you know, this has put so much fear and hatred in other people's hearts. And they have, they feel like now they have the right to speak up about Muslims and say things that are not okay. When you say that now you're the other in their eyes, how, Mm -hmm. what is that what happens? What is it? What, what? How does that manifest? What do people say or do to you that that makes you feel that way? They say things such as, "Why do you work here? Have you been vetted? Are you even a U.S. citizen?" Like as if I don't belong here, as if I'm supposed to be on the other side of the border. Um, a lot of people, after everything that's happened, you know, whether they're Mexican or Muslim at the company, have been you know, been told racist remarks to them, and that's not okay. I mean, I see, like, unfortunately, you see fear in these people's eyes because they aren't well-educated about what the Muslim population in Chicago is like, what the, most of the Muslim population in America is like. We're here because we have family here. We want to keep each other safe. We want to keep each other protected. Um, you know, this is our home, and now for someone to look at you and say, this isn't your home, this is my home, that's I mean, this is just coming from the rhetoric of, you know, President Donald Trump. But It sounds very distressing indeed. And I was just curious, if you don't mind uh, answering, mm-hmm. is what do you say? I fight for myself. I tell them, you know, I was born a U.S. citizen. I was born a U.S. citizen overseas. And my father is an immigrant. But if my father hadn't come to America, I wouldn't be here working to keep America safe. My family, like my brother, you know, serves and in the U.S. Coast Guard, we wouldn't be here keeping America safe. And honestly, there's only so much you can say before you're threatened to lose your job. Well, thank you for that, yes, Wajiha. Yeah. Thank you for your service, uh, and, and, and thanks for sharing your story. Quickly, let's go to Ahmad in D.C. Yes. Um, thank you for taking my call. Uh, this is a great, uh, great program. I just wanted to... Uh, share a couple of points, quick points. Uh, one thing, uh, personally, my sister actually left, uh, left on the, uh, the night that the order was uh, announced, on Friday night, without knowing that this was going to uh, affect her. She um, is a uh, legal permanent resident of the United States. She went through more than two years of uh, vetting process before she was uh, admitted as a legal uh, permanent resident. And then she actually lived here for over three years with her husband, and then she was just going for a, a short trip to Iran, and her husband was here, 
And uh, when she left, only a couple of hours after she left, we found out that uh, she was not going to be able to come back. And that's not just a mere inconvenience for, for people. You know, when they talk about inconvenience, that's, that's a crime. You know, when you're pulling your family apart, when she didn't do anything wrong, she didn't break any laws, she was here, she followed the rules and everything. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is uh, I wanted oh, to wait, make— before, uh, you, before you go ahead, uh, so, so she's—where is she now? She's in Iran right now because she, she couldn't come back. You know, we tried to reach her in Istanbul when she made it to Istanbul on her way to Iran because there's no direct flights to Iran. And uh, we were trying to get her back on the next flight back. They wouldn't let her back on a plane because she was uh, she had an Iranian passport, even though she's a legal permanent resident. And this was uh, in the earliest stages when the confusion, uh, it, they uh, actually lumped the, uh, the green card holders with the, with the visa holders altogether initially. And then they started backtracking and, uh, you know, stepping back a little bit. Then they said, well, you know, the permanent residents, maybe they should be uh, re-interviewed and re-vetted before they can be let back in, even though she was just here until just the day before uh, without any problem. And then her husband is, is uh, worried sick that, you know, when they can uh, reunite again, and if, if uh, what if what if this uh, ban gets uh, keeps getting extended for indefinite period of time? So this is not just a mere inconvenience. You know, this poor guy was having a heart attack, and um, and literally, I mean, uh, eventually uh, they they um, came back with a uh, because of the pressure, I think. Uh, came back saying that, well, you know, the green card holders are not going to be affected going yeah. forward. Th- thank but, you for uh, that. I'm, I'm, I'm going to. So I'm, I'm going to interrupt you for a second there and, and it, because we're going to need to move on. But just to clarify, yes, the White House has said that green card holders are not affected by the ban. That is the latest on it. There was a lot of back and forth, but that seems to be clear now. But, Anne, um, let's talk about the rest of the world and how this is. Well, indeed. <laughs> what, what's happening around the world? You've got correspondents spread all over the place. Um, and, um, and, and I gather that there has, this has really ripped something open. Yes, I, I think it has. I mean, we, we've been writing about and we'll continue to do so this week, big protests in London today. A lot of pressure there on Prime Minister Theresa May, the first leader to meet Trump in Washington last week. And the, the question there is, well, does constructive engagement work? Does it work with this kind of new president? So we, we've been talking about that, but but not only in London. I mean, if you uh, go across to Germany, there's a particularly sharp response. Our correspondent in Germany was just talking to me earlier today about that, because there's a very much, I think, the historical residences are so strong in Berlin. Yeah. If you think back to all of those people who came here as refugees in the Third Reich, yeah. and that therefore just it echoes through the debate. I would say across the political spectrum, for, from what we're hearing from Berlin, there's perhaps even more unity uh, against what is happening than in other countries, where some people might be saying a little bit behind their hands, "Well, you know, he, he's, he's got a point. We've all got to work out how many refugees we want." I think in Germany, the response is very strong. Yeah, I mean, and it sounds like it echoes what is happening in Congress here, right? That uh, Republicans in particular, Republican senators, are trying to figure out how they relate themselves to this. Do they distance themselves from it? Do they embrace it? How do they talk about it publicly? And what's that going to mean? In hearing you talk about uh, Germany's response and them sort of being the most recent, I I think of them as the most one of the most recent folks to have really aggressively have to deal with this because of violence, because of a terrorist attack um, that opened up this debate. That's right. Similarly, yeah. And similarly, Canada, uh, we this weekend had is kind of coming at it from a different direction in which uh, Justin Trudeau, the prime minister, has really 
put himself out there uh, as somebody who's who's going to be a leader uh, on welcoming refugees into the country and it's led to uh some pushback there's there was there was the attack uh, on the mosque this uh, this weekend that we heard about what are you, what are you hearing about about this hemisphere well i think that that's very interesting we've you know, we've we've written a lot about Canada recently, there's a point of difference that is very much noticed abroad between the direction that Canada has taken and the United States. And that contrast is, you know, people obviously line up on, on either side of that, but it's just much more con- uh, commented on perhaps in many years as a journalist. I haven't seen that focus so much. But here's another large country, perhaps less well known for its open door policy than Canada, uh, correspondent in Brazil, emailed me today to say something very interesting there is the fast tracking of large numbers of Syrian refugees. Partly, yes, because the country needs some incomers. It's been in the economic doldrums and they, they see that as a, a way of getting in you know, fresh minds, fresh blood, perhaps new generations there and some different international influences, but also a bit of a point of contrast with the US. And I think that is really what Brazil intends. Right. And so we've got Canada, Brazil trying to be a bit point of contrast with the US. We've got Europe weighing where this is going to go. There's a lot to watch. For this last period we have here on the show, we've got about 10 minutes left. We want to just hear from as many of you as we possibly can. So we're going to just start moving through some of you. We're going to start with you, Jeffrey, in Forest Hills. Jeffrey, how are you? Fine. Good evening. How are you, sir? Forest Hills, Queens. You're here in New York? Of course. Wonderful New York. Why not? (laughs) Why not? Why not? What would you like to, to, to tell us about, Jeffrey? I like to say that Trump did the best thing possible. I feel so much safer now. I don't think it's anything against immigration or anything. It's against terror. And, I, you know, I work very close to the World Trade Center. When 3,000 people got cremated, I had a friend of mine who saw people jumping out of the 64th window and going to their death. I've, I've been circumvented all this stuff, and it's horrible. And what about these people, these poor people in the Boston Marathon? who got murdered? What about these people in the clubs who got murdered? I mean, this is about terror. And this is, I don't think anything is wrong what Trump did. He wants to make people feel safe. This isn't against Muslims. It's against terrorism. People don't understand this. But if you are in a religion that does okay terrorism, then he's right. Well, that, that, that's a pretty big if there. I just, just might add that. But I just wondered if there was anything, I mean, you, you talked about a friend and something you know, that you've heard and you look back to, to 9-11, as we all do with, with horror. But is there anything in your own experience that makes you think that this would make it any better? Of course it'll make it better. You, you don't want people coming over, coming over here and, and being indoctrinated with threats because we don't follow their ways. No. No way. If they don't like it, we have a great clause in our Constitution, the right to leave. So let them leave. Okay. Well, thank you, Jeffrey, for that. To, to, to be clear, there, we, we don't have any proof that uh, there are refugees coming to indoctrinate people. Uh, that is a point of, of great debate. Let's go to Pappy in Chicago. Um, hi. Uh, the only thing I will say is that, uh, um, well, first of all, I am Muslim, and I was born in America. Um, um, I, I don't think this is the right way to go about this. Um, the, the, if you look at history, if you look at the United States, white Americans have killed more people, more Americans than any other group in the world. What happened in 9-11 is abhorrent. As a Muslim, in Islam, the, that crime is punishable by death. No Muslim would agree or 
or, or condone those acts. We Muslims living here in the West, we cannot even identify with, with these horrific acts that are being committed in the name of Islam. Pe Trump may have a good idea, but he's going about it the wrong way. Pepe, can I ask you, Have we had a caller from Chicago earlier say that she was feeling that uh, as a consequence of this, that the, the, the climate has changed, in at least in her area of the city. Do you feel any different? Um, uh... I, I, I feel no. I, when I went to work today, it was heavy. I mean, the atmosphere was just thick. I kept to my office um, all day. People knew. They respect me. I respect them, you know. Um, but they knew something is something is something wasn't right. And I received a text from a former colleague who is a who's Caucasian, who is not a Muslim, who asked me, "What can I do for the mosque? Tell me what are the needs of the mosques yeah. around here." You know, the future face of the United States includes Muslims, and we need to wake up to that reality. There's a lot of Muslims who were born uh, in the United States who are American citizens, and whenever the government or anyone decides to take an action, you need to keep those citizens in mind. Thank you, Pappy, for calling. And I, I, I do want to emphasize one thing he said in there, that there was a white American who uh, who was asking how to help. I think uh, when we, we're stuck in divides a lot, and, and in ne necessarily in this conversation, but there is also a lot of coming together that we should keep in mind. Let's go to Mohammed in Yonkers. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Thanks for calling. Um, <clears throat> I mean, the uh, refugees that choose to come here on their own, is because the circumstances that we're living in. I mean, we destroyed a nation, Iraq, a nation of 30 million people based on lies, weapons of mass destruction that they never had. We destroyed a whole country. 30 million people's lives are destroyed based on lies. And now we get them here and discriminating against refugees, Muslims. I'm a Muslim. 38 years I was raised in this country. When I go back and visit my relatives in the Middle East, I tell them how great America is. I don't, even, I don't even know what to say to them now. What am I going to say so, to them now? So, Mohammed, let me ask you, because we're, we're, we're trying to urge people tonight to talk about themselves and their experiences. Uh, and, uh, and so you said you're a Muslim. And where, where are you from? You said when you go back to your country, where, where are you from? I mean, when I go visit my relatives back in the Middle East, in, uh, <clears throat> in Jerusalem, I tell them how great America is, how great the American people are. And, and, and they seem... They, they look at me like I'm from a different world from what they hear by the media, by the representatives. And but I tell them it's totally different. America is a great place. But when they hear all this, what am I supposed to tell them? Well, this... How can I explain this to them? My I... mom is coming actually tomorrow. She's an American citizen. My aunt that's with her is a green card holder. I'm, I'm debating if I should get a lawyer to meet her at the airport. Well, thank you for that. It sounds like that she would be covered, covered, not covered by this travel ban, so she should be able to enter. And this kind of sounds again. This, this he, he, Muhammad's talking about the way this is echoing around the globe. How people are thinking about Americans. Well, indeed, it made me think also his last point. It's going to be a country of very busy lawyers, isn't it? <laughs> uh, but yes, it, it, it is echoing around the globe. And I think what, one of the things that sort of lurked a bit under the, the conversation that your last caller made me think about it was: is there is there a link? You know, is this actually going to make things worse, as some people claim? Is it a recruiting tool for terrorism? I mean, we, in fact, we don't know. Sometimes we make these links and we have to you know, take a, a longer historical view to find out. But that's, you know, these are the questions and they're all so focused on America. It's no exaggeration, really, I think, to say all eyes are on this around the world. Let's go to Matt in Greenbelt, Maryland. Hi, Matt. 
Hey, uh, thanks for taking my call. Thanks for calling us. What would you like to tell uh, us about? Well, so I'm a white millennial Christian. I've got uh, refugee friends. I've got Muslim friends. They're all just beautiful and decent people. Uh, but I'm terrified about the ban because I, I know that this sets precedent. And, and so, you know, today's Muslim ban is tomorrow's Christian ban. And, and I've got kids, and, and this is a country with equal justice under law, and we can't have that. What do you think, Matt, about what we've heard from some callers, uh, and, and I've heard this, that that may be fi- all fine and good, that, that you have friends who are great and wonderful people, but that there's a real threat out there. And uh, we yes. heard from somebody earlier who had served in Iraq for a couple of years, and you know, he said there's a lot of people, Muslims he saw that were bad um, and that wanted to hurt us. And, uh, and so this would make them, him feel safe. And, and so I guess, how do, you, how do you feel about that, the difference between safety um, and, this, uh, and, and, and your concerns about the policy setting a bad precedent? You know, the, the, the odds are so incredibly minuscule that, that, that I would be hurt that I'm not worried at all about safety. I'm, I'm worried about precedent. Well, thank you for that, Matt. We, we have time for one more caller, Hamed in Kent, Ohio. I'm certain I'm mispronouncing your name. No, that's actually pretty good. Ah, all right. I'm doing pretty good tonight. Okay. W- w- <laughs> as quick as you can, tell us, tell us your experience. Sure. Uh, proud to be the last caller. Um, I'm actually a first-generation Iranian-American citizen. Uh, my parents are both uh, Iranian immigrants. Uh, my mother specifically is a professor here. I just wanted to uh, share a quick anecdote. I know I heard Very a lot quick. of You've got 10 outpouring of concern. Yeah, um, but my mom actually had uh, a lot of indifference, um, even though she's in herself. Um, she seemed to think that if Clinton was elected instead of Trump, she might have gone about the same thing in a much sneakier way. Okay, um, well... We'll leave it there. The word, the, the worries that Clinton may have been sneakier. You've been listening to Indivisible. This is a new public radio conversation airing four nights a week on stations all over the country for the first hundred days of the new administration. Tomorrow, join WNYC's Brian Lehrer. He'll be joined by former Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez and WNYC's Jamie Floyd. We'll be taking your calls. Please join us and thank you for joining us tonight. If you like the Indivisible podcast, rate and review it and tell your friends. And thanks for listening.